Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Highly Functional. This is Brianne Showman, and I am joined today by Tim Silvestri. Tim is a performance psychologist who dives into the mental mechanics that we have, ultimately the way the brain works in order to improve our performance. We had a great conversation today, really figuring out what these frameworks that we hold do to our performance and how we can disrupt those frameworks to become better athletes and essentially better humans. Whether you are an athlete, a clinician, or a coach, I think you'll find this conversation highly valuable. So let's tune in. Tim, thank you for joining me today. How are you? I'm great. Thanks. It's uh, 93 here in uh, Eastern PA. So it's cool. It's not cool. <laughs> hot, but it's awesome. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> awesome. I think we're supposed to hit 110 today. I think. <laughs> yeah. So, but you know, it's normal Phoenix summer. So there we go. <laughs> that was, yeah, I figured I was subjecting myself to an easy loss there. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> Very true. Very true. <laughs> Awesome. Well, I'm excited to talk to you. I've listened to a number of your podcasts and I've talked to you on the phone and I, I just love the direction or the, the way you think about things when it comes to the mind, um, because you do break it down very much into like, like I do with the body, as far as how the body's moving, you think about that mechanical side of the brain too, and how it's working. So, um, I'm excited to dive into a conversation with you, but first off, who are you? Yeah, so uh, I'm, I'm a behind-the-scenes guy, first of all. So I do this kind of stuff because we really are trying to get the word out and we think we can save lives, literally. Um, but uh, my preference is to be behind the scenes. <laughs> and, and I get my partners to usually, well, they, whatever. But, but anyway, so I'm Tim Silvestri. I'm a performance psychologist. I have a PhD in psychology. And... Um, I, I, uh, I don't know, a couple things. I'm a director of a counseling center, so I have a pretty demanding full-time job. I'm a single dad, and so that's a pretty demanding full-time job. Um, I'm a highly competitive OCR athlete at age 52 in the upper age group division, the old, the old folk division. Um, and so that's a full-time job. And then we're launching a bunch of things to try to help people lead better lives. So um, lots going on. But um, I think one of the cool things about that is at 46, it was uh, it was one of those moments where it's like, oh, why not reinvent myself and go in that OCR direction? So uh, I really just set my sights on it. I was terrible for all of you out there in the OCR world. I, I used to do 200 burpees like it was just a normal part of the race. Like, oh, not everyone does 200 burpees. 210 <laughs> to be exact. Um, 240, I think, was probably my record. Um, so if they were handing out awards for most burpees, I would have clearly scomped everybody. Uh, yeah, I was terrible, right, for a number of years until I really got good. And, um, and I have some age group wins behind me uh, and, and also you know, it doesn't matter what age you are. It's like, go for it. Um, go for that next thing. If you're 25, if you're 60, who cares? It just build it up. It's going to take many years and go for it. So that's, you know, but what I do with folks in my, 
private world in my private practice, when athletes reach out to me, um, they, what I do is really build up a lot of the mechanics, kind of the mental mechanics. And it is very precise, just like the world you exist in, which is the biomechanics. And um, we were joking before we started, which is to me, when I hear people talk, it's like nails on a chalkboard. Like when you watch people do a deadlift or something and you're just like, oh, that is just not what that should look like. And you want to go in there and correct them. And, you know, I'm talking pros I meet with, elites, um, to beginners, to CEOs. I have writers and musicians I work with. Um, it's really just like, nope, that's not how we're going to approach that. This is the mindset. This is the framework. This is the science behind things that we talk about a lot, like motivation and different things. So it's, it's really that one-on-one and that uh, bringing to light the mechanics of things so that they can function better. And they do. Uh, they, they, it's easily applied. It's easily understood as, uh, hopefully we find out today if I at all deliver, <laughs> if not, then you get me back on track. There we go. <laughs> so that's me. Diving into the framework conversation, when we're talking framework about things like, are these things that kind of like the stories we tell ourselves, the things that are ingrained in us since from like a young age, or maybe like an, a boss kept ingraining in us, like how do these frameworks develop in our minds? Yeah, so let me just break. This is four years of psychology undergrad in three uh, points. One is humans are a social species and everything is social, right? It's viewed through that lens. Two, we have systems and subsystems. And that's a lot of the world you exist in, um, right? Uh, the skeletal muscular system, different things like that. And, but our endocrine system, you know, cortisol and stuff like that. And then we have associative networks and they, those associative networks work in the following way real quick is you have an anchor, like a nucleus, a cluster of neurons, and then branching out from that are, it's called scaffolding. And that anchor and scaffolding make up the way we interact with the world. So if I say elephant, you can picture an elephant. And most people, if I said, give me some things you associate with elephant, would say big ears, trunk, tusks, right? Africa, whatever. Um, and so that's the, I opened up that anchor and then scaffolding. So whether you call it associative networks, schema, schemata, mindsets, frameworks, we're really talking about associative networks, which are the building blocks for how we interact with the world. And so when I say it's really specific, when we have a framework like talent, there is really not much evidence for this concept talent. So it's really a broken framework. And when we're, but because we grew up with it, it's the story, like you said, that we learned. We frame everything from that perspective. And because that perspective is either incomplete, inaccurate altogether, just broken, the, the more broken, the more incomplete the concept, then the worse our performance is. And so, um, and talent's a big one. People argue, woo, man, you, you want to get some pushback, just mention talent and there's not much evidence for it and people will wig out. 
because they are sure they're convinced that talent is real. And it's like, okay, show me the evidence besides height or freakish body, like Michael Phelps, which is perfect for swimming, but I don't view height as talent. So that's, you know, that's a biggie, but motivation and time management and, and, you know, these type of things, they're just broken frameworks or schemata or associative networks that we've learned that are incomplete or inaccurate. Let's dive into the motivation side of things. Um, and I'm partially thinking because like people are getting back to the motivation standpoint now, but like I saw a lot of people during 2020 when races got off the schedules, like they just stopped working out. They stopped training because like there was nothing to train for and they had no like why behind them of why they do this other than just to race. Um, so where, like when it comes to the motivation standpoint, like what are we looking at as far as framework goes and, and Mm -hmm. kind of breaking that down? Yeah. So motivation is a great one to start with. And the, the stuff we're writing now, um, I, I just, uh, pulled in a partner to do a bunch of writing on this and our working title right now, I hopefully no one in your audience steals it, but, um, (laughs) just kidding, of course, but is disrupted. And, and the point of that is, and think about a framework. It's not that you're low in motivation or that you, you need me to come in and help you become more motivated. If we think of it as we have motivation, what disrupted it? And if we can think of things as disrupted rather than broken, then we're halfway there because everyone has well-being. Everyone has motivation. Everyone, everyone has days when they get stuff done. Everyone has days when they laugh, when they socialize. So they don't, they don't lack these things. They don't need me to come in and help them get it. They have it. What they, what something is disrupted. So motivation, for example, let me give you one, um, is you have two systems. This is simplification, of course, but basically in your cells, you have energy mode or conservation mode. And Energy mode is literally taking molecules of fuel and throwing it into the mitochondria, right? The powerhouse of the cell, which by the way, yay, fifth grade biology teachers, everyone knows the mitochondria. Um, Everyone remember that, so funny. But, uh, and then you have this other uh, organelle in your cell called a vacuole, and that's a storage plant. And when you're in conservation mode, which is your brain's default mode, and that's important for motivation, your brain's default is to be in conservation mode. It wants to save that, those molecules of fuel. It wants to put them in the vacuole so that if a saber-toothed tiger comes around a corner, you can suddenly act. You can jump into energy mode, but you need energy to jump into energy mode. So it wants to conserve it. So without doing anything, you're going to be in conservation mode. You're going to lack energy, lack motivation. And so there's a couple ways to, tr- so then you have to ask yourself, okay, I don't, I'm lazy today. I don't feel like doing anything. What's going on while well, I'm in conservation mode. Okay. Well, how do I spark motivation? How do I spark myself into energy mode? The easiest way, the, the best way is, um, is to set a priority and set a strategy or plan. And that immediately, so when you just say, okay, this is my list of things to do, that's not going to do it. In fact, that whole list could put you into conservation mode because it's like, wow, that's a lot. 
I don't know. I'll just stay in this on this couch and watch the Flintstones. Probably most of your listener group doesn't don't even know what the Flintstones are. <laughs> <laughs> but whatever. Don't even look them up. It, it was a terrible cartoon. Cartoons today are way better. Um, so yeah, so you're in you're in conservation mode. But if you set a priority, like this is my one priority this hour. Like this hour, this is my priority. I have to do this. And, and this is my strategy. I'm going to sit in this location. I'm going to put Assassin's Creed radio on my Pandora. By the way, video game music is awesome to get things done, uh, like mental work, because it's monotonous. It's repetitive. There's no singing. The volume doesn't increase, decrease. And it's really complex composition. So it lights up your whole brain. Good to know. So video game music is awesome. Um, you get a lot done to you listen to that. That's a strategy. And I have a priority. And then now suddenly I have enough to start. And then once you start, you know, then it's like Newton's law of motion. A body in motion stays in motion, right? So you're more likely to continue. If someone says starting is what stops us, which is just genius, <laughs> you know? So that's a way to bump you out of conservation mode to energy mode. Other things that can happen with motivation, though, is um, the best, the cleanest, bursting, longest lasting fuel on the planet is link something that you're doing to something bigger than yourself. So um, my avatar, there is a a young adult named Maddie Holloway, Holloran, sorry. Uh, Maddie Halloran, and um, she's from New Jersey, which is my home state, and she chose death by suicide as a, as a Penn student, and tragically, right, and she it was an athlete and all this stuff, and, and it's like, we really believe that if she had understood what she was going through and understood the cortisol spiral and had the right um, perspective that she would have lived, and that's our mission. You know, we want to help athletes who have a lot of influences, a lot of fatigue, a lot of pressure to function better and live well. That's the cleanest, that's the most long lasting fuel you could have. You know, so part of excelling at OCR is like, I have to walk the walk if people are going to if, if more people can, are going to listen to me, it's going to be because I walk the walk, not just talk the talk. And so you think you're going to beat me up a mountain when I want to be the first one up the mountain? Because if I do, maybe one more person will listen to me and listen to the cortisol spiral and I could save someone's life. It's going to be pretty hard to beat me. You know what I mean? Because it's bigger than me. It's not just some narcissistic play on oh look how great I am who cares like that that's not clean long-lasting fuel so everyone link your link your whatever you're doing you know everyone says why what's your why link it to something bigger than yourself even if it's you want to show your kids what my second why is I want to show my kids what it looks like to succeed I don't want them reading it I read it I want them seeing it like their old man dad who couldn't do a pull-up just won Palmerton, a major race. Like, you know, they, they saw that transformation. Um, that you think I'm not going to get up at 4 a.m. and go to the gym? Right? Like, yeah, yeah I'm going to go to the gym at 4 a.m. 
because it matters to people other than me. So these are all tools you can use. And the last one is just, you know, it's a lot of times you're lacking motivation because you're tired. So here's another framework is um, it's work recovery ratio. All your best athletes know this. And if they're tired and don't feel like doing a run, they don't do the run. Because if they don't feel like doing it, they probably are too tired to do it. So they need a jolt of recovery. But amateurs I work with, they're like, no, push, push. You know, and I love, you know, David Goggins? Uh-huh. David Goggins is awesome, right? Mental toughness, always push. The problem with that is that's only one half of the coin here. Mental toughness and optimization are kind of diametrically opposed, right? And so there's times when you have to optimize and there's times when you have to be mentally tough. And if you don't ever do optimization, you're going to get injured. And so we need our recovery. So some days you don't have it because you're tired and you need recovery. And recovery isn't rest. You could do active recovery. Sometimes I go to a gym and I do five pound weights, 10 pound weights. You know, I'm literally curling with a 10 pound weight. But I'm just trying to get blood flow in my muscles. Um, and so I'm doing a recovery workout. That's just active recovery. Absolutely. So motivation comes down to, can you spark yourself into energy mode out of conservation mode? Number one, you're not lacking motivation or discipline or anything like that. Are you too tired and you need recovery? Is there a why bigger than you? And if without, you're going to be inconsistent with jumping into energy mode. Um, And a hack is to plan and prioritize. Um, Without a plan, without a priority, you're going to be in conservation mode. Saber-toothed tigers forced themselves into our lives and they were an immediate priority. So our brain understands priorities. It doesn't understand to-do lists. You know what I mean? So think of it, think of a priority as a saber-toothed tiger. Like, I don't think you're like, oh, I'll get to you later. (laughs) That's our to-do list. It'll still be there tomorrow. (laughs) Like, you you know, like, oh, I'll get to you later, saber-tooth. You know, (laughs) I'll name you. I'll try to make you a pet. No. (laughs) Doesn't work. (laughs) You know, I I love that you brought up the the David Goggins side of things because Ever since like I read a book and learned about him, it's like I've kind of I've had that same viewpoint as a clinician. And I'm like, I've never found anyone who like has said that as well. I'm just like, yeah, it's good to have that mindset. But I'm like, we need to con- like pushing too hard is not smart either. And we're talking about like being an athlete and performing well and being like feeling good. Yeah, and I, I didn't really that's no knock on Goggins. I love Goggins. Oh, absolutely. I could quote Goggins all day, literally. Um, so it's definitely no not, but there is the other side and that's optimization. Um, imagine four days before a race, you do a max effort. Like, obviously not, <laughs> right? Like, that, duh, right? Is that's not because you're optimizing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've heard plenty of other people talk about optimizing and optimization and stuff. Um, I'm not saying I created that by any means. <laughs> You started mentioning it a little bit when you were talking about Maddie. I would love to dive into the cortisol conversation. And I love how you worded it when you were talking with me as far as not being the stress hormone or, you know, being the 
they get stuff done hormone. So I would love to talk about kind of how that cortisol spiral works and how we can actually optimize the cortisol cortisol. Yeah. And, and just a, a quick return of that to your audience. I, I really should have kind of set a trigger alert. That was really kind of not cool of me. And a, it was rather abrupt. And, you know, this is a topic that affects us, some of us very deeply and others of all of us in some way. So there should have been a little bit more of a care taken and I'm, my apologies for that. Um, so cortisol has been um, falsely termed, I would, I would say, that it's falsely termed as a stress hormone. And if you, if you know the history of the research, that makes sense. Um, uh, Robert Sapolsky, uh, primatologist, biologist, he, he studied it in the eighties and nineties and then, you know, humans, primates as well. Um, and so it, it does make sense. And, and, and we have this long history of stress. Uh, so Sapolsky is a main person, Read Reed Sapolsky is wonderful. Uh, Kelly McGonigal wrote a book, The Upside of Stress. Uh, she's wonderful. And, um, and, and they're great reads. Uh, anyway, and Sapolsky has a great uh, number of YouTube videos. But um, really, it's been a misnomer. So what, what cortisol really is, is a GSD hormone, right? And that's get stuff done or, you know, substitute the S for a different word. <laughs> um, and so it's really a GSD hormone and, and cortisol starts turning on around 3, 4 a.m. and then is on a slow decline throughout the rest of the day. Um, and uh, people who suffer, once we go through the cortisol, I'll show you, but once you get deep, deep in a cortisol spiral, uh, you, you become more vegetative, you, you lose your interest in things, you're, you're isolated. And then you have such low levels of cortisol that you, you know, you're without it. And so here you are at the height of your stress and you have like no cortisol, uh, it, because you've been so inactive and isolated and stuff like that. So just, you could see then they're without their GSD hormones. So, you know, here's a framework, I'm going to do a quick tangent, a framework that we don't appreciate enough is it's not about the thing. And I'll give you examples of things. It's not about the thing. It's really about dose and timing. Coffee's not good or bad. Don't have 12 cups in a row. Like that, that's too much, right? The dosage is off. Don't have it at 12 midnight if you're trying to go to bed, right? The timing is off. But coffee's, caffeine's just a thing. Same with food. There's no good food, bad food. It's dosing. It's timing, right? Uh, my grandmother had so little salt that she had an iodine deficit and was almost in a like vegetative state. And they had to pump her with iodine because she was on a healthy diet with no salt. So she underdosed iodine, iodinized salt, you know? So there's no good or bad, it's dosage and timing. And cortisol's like that, um, it's dosage. And so what happens when you have repeated blows, repeated major stressors, is you get frequent abundant hits of, of cortisol. And what happens with that is with that abundance of cortisol, it disrupts your slow wave sleep, your coma-based sleep. 
And then as you aren't sleeping right, you, you're not in that reparative, slow wave, vegetative sleep, then your eating starts going offline. You start losing your appetite or you start craving high fat, high carb foods like the, the bad fat, not bad, but the less dense, less nutrient, you know, you're not eating guac, um, that kind of stuff. And again, there's no good food or bad food, but it's about dosage. And so um, as you stop eating these kind of high quality foods, uh, it can throw off your endocrine system again. Cortisol is part of your endocrine system. And that's a little downward spiral. The less well you eat, the less well you sleep, the less well you eat. So another little spiral. Um, but what happens with the sleep deprivation, the, the low energy from low food intake, uh, is you lose your motivation, you lose your concentration, you lose your, uh, you don't feel like reaching out, you lose your socialization, more stress, more cortisol around around you go. And after about eight weeks of that, you kind of go into a, a state of emotional dysregulation. So you had well-being, well-being was disrupted. And by calling it depression or anxiety, you're not incorrect but it's an incomplete framework because depression didn't come in and invade you like streptococcus bacteria. If you have strep throat, that's an, that's an outside invader. Depression didn't invade you. Your regulatory mechanisms went offline. So you tear up for no reason. You lose your energy. You lose your interest in socializing. You're down and out your well-being was disrupted. And that's why disrupted is such a key. You had motivation and then it got disrupted. You had well-being and then it became disrupted. And so if we change that framework, we can really dive in. And then at 12 weeks, about um, some extended period of time, what happens is things really start shutting down. Since you haven't been using your frontal lobe as much, goal-directed behavior, you actually lose density in your frontal lobe. So now you really enter a vegetative state kind of, um, and that's the state that Maddie was in. And she kept saying, I just don't understand what's happening to me. And I, we know clearly what was happening. She was in a cortisol spiral, deep one, and her orbital frontal cortex, if I had a picture of it, I guarantee you it, was, it shrunk by a third. Um, and it can regenerate in six weeks. And in fact, we can bring ourselves out of half, halfway out of the deep cortisol spiral in three to five days, just by doing a massive intake of food, especially healthy fats. Uh, and I'm not saying, you know, cure your depression through eating nuts and guacamole. What I'm saying is, if you're in a deep cortisol spiral, three to five days of healthy fats, especially and some good carbs can re reboot the system I've done this with so many athletes who were literally down and out. And on the fourth day, fifth day, they're 50% better. If they were at 20%, they're already up to 70%. Um, and then we have some psychological work to do. But it's a cortisol spiral. And if you have an anxious temperament, unlike a chill temperament, you're probably then experiencing panic attacks. Panic attacks are an extreme form of dysregulation based on a downward spiral from a cortisol spiral that's been going on for many, many weeks. And again, we can shut down panic attacks in three days. 
um, just by knowing the better your why is, the better your how is. What? Panic attacks. Why? Cortisol spiral. The better your why, how, we're going to focus on physiology because right now you're in a negative physiological state. And once we bump you out of that negative physiological state, okay, then we'll talk about psychology. But a psychologist is useless to you in the first thing, right? You, you need to regulate your physiology. And that's what's missed. It's psychology took everything over and it treats everything psychologically when you, people just don't know their neurophysiology and how things work. You know, we could talk about motivation all day, but if you don't know the neurophysiology of it, you're going to miss it, you know? So I don't know. Did that make sense? Did I miss anything? This is stuff I say a lot. So sometimes, you know, I, I'm like not as clear as I'm used to being. I don't know. No, it, it made sense to me. Um, no, I, I think it made sense. I do have a, I'm, I'm curious though. What is it about, like, I have no problem eating a lot of avocado and nuts and seeds because that's what I love anyway. But what is it about the healthy fats that break us out of that spiral? Well, I mean, fat and carbs are fuel. I mean, this is an oversimplification, right? Fat and carbs are fuel. And um, protein heals muscles. Again, huge oversimplification. I'm not a dietitian, But I mean, generally speaking, that framework will get you 90% of the way there. Um, so I, I like fats because uh, fats can uh, really recharge your endocrine system. So it doesn't really matter if you're eating carbs or fats. They're both fuel. Uh, so just get fuel in you. Do a massive downloading of fuel. And the problem with Twinkies is not that they're carbs. It's just it's so quick burning. It's, it's really not going to fuel you up because you're just going to burn it in like an hour. Mm -hmm. So I need something that's more slow burn, you know, like rice, that kind of carb, especially brown rice, because it has the outer covering on it. That takes 24 hours to burn. So don't do brown rice in the middle of an ultra uh, Spartan, you know, a 10 hour race, because you're not going to have access to that stuff till the next day. Um, do a Twinkie in the middle of an ultra because it burns. It's so nothing. It's air. It burns so quickly. <laughs> right. So I want something dense. It's about the density. It's not fat versus carbs, but guac and nuts and those things tend to be dense and fat really does jack up your endocrine system so it, it's kind of building up for day five and six and seven as well okay cool let's take a quick break to talk about zero shoes you know i love being barefoot i am barefoot as much as possible but when you're out in public sometimes that's frowned upon and when you're walking around on concrete and asphalt in the Phoenix summers, it's highly unsafe. That's when Zero Shoes comes in handy. These shoes allow my feet to be as barefoot as possible, to allow my feet to still work like they were made to work. And the great thing about these shoes is they last. They have a 5,000 mile sole warranty, meaning you rarely have to replace these shoes and they have a wide range of options. So whether you're looking for sandals, something for casual wear, or something for your sports or work, they have you covered. 
You can go check them out at Zero Shoes, that's spelled X-E-R-O, shoes.com, slash go, slash getyourfixpt. And you can find all of my partnerships at getyourfixpt.com slash partners. And now, back to our conversation. Something I'm curious about is, we see it a lot with athletes. We see, it really shows in the professional athletes of all sports, but we see it all the time where it's like, they consistently lose to those people who aren't as good as them. And then they can always be those people who technically are better than them. And so it's like people like we see a lot of athletes playing to basically the level of the other person. Like why, what's the framework behind that as far as why do people do that versus like, I know I can legitimately play at this level. I'm just going to play at that level all the time. Well, I have a saying, so I have a ton of mantras for each of these, uh, frameworks that we talk about. Um, the mantra I would start with is be careful believing you're awesome because you can just as easily believe you're not, you know? And, and so for one, there is no one who's worse than you on any given day. You don't know that. Um, and you don't know where your body's going to be. And in fact, when, when I talk weight training or strength training with my athletes, you know, I get them out of this over measurement cycle, which just fries their nervous system. And they, they don't measure all that much. So if I go into a weight room and I'm going to do an incline bench, I don't know what I'm going to lift that day. My body's going to tell me what I lift that day. And if it's a very light weight, then that's what my body wants to lift that day. Right. So be careful in competition because you don't know where your body's going to be that day. You don't know where their body's going to be that day. Quirky things happen. Um, so we would never look past competition like that. And again, if all you have to do is show up and you showed up, guess what? Your body just went to conservation mode. Do you ever notice how people collapse three feet after the finish line in the marathon and never 10 feet before the finish line. Isn't that odd? Isn't that coincidental that 26,000 New York city marathoners all collapse five feet after the finish line? Cause they finish the race and they go immediately into conservation mode. Right? So if all you had to do was show up to beat your opponent, well, you showed up and now you're in conservation mode and your body literally is not going to perform very well. Right. And that's why in an ultra at a Spartan, you shouldn't break for 10 minutes at that halfway point, right? Because your body goes into recovery mode and now you got to build it back out of recovery mode. And what a bear, like you should be two minutes or less. Mentally, it's kind of the same thing. It's like, don't go into conservation mode just by showing up. That would be one reason. You know, there's others, but that would be a biggie. No, that makes sense. I had a feeling it was related to that conservation mode. I was just curious on. That'd be one suspicious thing, right? That would be one thing to look at. Yeah. Um, yeah. Awesome. But another thing is, you know, if you look past an opponent too much and you let's say you didn't take them lightly, but you overtrained leading into it because you could, um, that I could see. Uh, another one, I remember, um, I don't want to 
name names, but I heard the interview and, and this elite athlete, it was a world championship. And they said, quote, I'm going to take it out hard because I want to have this race won at the halfway point. I thought that's a nightmare. Like you already picked a point that you're going to win. Do you realize this is world championships and you're up against other really good people? Um, right. Like you don't know that this is a dog fight. It's world championships. Right. Um, so that was a nightmare. And that person, uh, DQ'd, he didn't finish the race. Uh, so these are the type of things that are the high profile moments that I work with athletes on, like the mindset for race day, but I'm more about the low profile moments. For example, I had an athlete, a goalie, and he came to me and he said, uh, my, I, my work, my week is really crazy this week. There's so many things happening. Um, and so basically we just worked on prioritize one strength build, do that, right? Your 10 minute warm up. do that thing for 10 minutes. And now you get to really prioritize and put a lot more energy into this one body part, um, which you usually don't get to do. So we restructured his week to respond to this overpacked week, which happens to professional athletes, right? They, they have all these commitments and stuff, or even top amateurs. Um, so those are the fun things that we can, that I like doing with athletes that are more low profile, but yeah, the high profile are there too, you know? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I know we talked about briefly on the phone. I'd like to dive into it just because it's such, it's gaining more traction the past several years. It's gained more traction. That's meditation. Um, I would love to just kind of talk about what it does um, to the brain itself, the impact of the brain, and then how that impacts performance as well. Yeah. So meditation, if you link it to uh, relaxation, uh, that's fine because some meditation can be about relaxation. Uh, but believe it or not, meditation has a long history before it was butchered by the West and bleached down to this. When we say Zen moment, we really mean the most relaxed place you could be. But meditation is, I think, equally appropriately looked at or even more appropriately looked at as a David Goggins moment, that it's a moment of difficulty. It's a moment of mental toughness. It's a moment of adversity. And so one version of meditation is where the, all the benefits arise. And I'll, I'll uh, explain two neurophysiological benefits, but one is it, it, it makes you stronger, hardier because so when I meditate, my, my, I put my butt on the cushion, my legs are out front, cross-legged, right? Palms up. And as soon as I close my eyes, I hold that position and I, I do not move. I do not open my eyes. I do not move my body. I'm locked in. And if I have an itch, I got to deal with the itch. Like I'm not going to itch it. And that's a moment of adversity. If you can not itch for 10 minutes, then my kid pissing me off 
<laughs> and me needing to hold my stuff together and be patient um, is a piece of cake relative to not itching something for 10 minutes. Or my cat will come up and purr and, and knock me and rub her head against my leg. And I don't open my eyes. I don't look down. I hold my position. And then the rest of the day is easy. So meditation really is about adversity. So here's a little neurophysiological hack that rarely gets airtime, which should, um, is you have a, a system and, and one part of it is your basal ganglia. They used to thought this part of your brain was more related to physical, but it's actually very mental. And um, so we have an editing system. And so if you, if you were born in the Amazon, you don't edit out natural sounds environmental sounds, because there could be something there to kill you. If you were born in Nutley, New Jersey, like I was, um, you edit out natural sounds. You edit out traffic noise. You edit it out. And, and parts of my brain, like the basal ganglia and others, were they, they help us to know what to edit out and what to let in. So by practicing meditation, you're building up the strength of these editing systems to edit out what ifs. So your frontal lobe is a problem solving the, the adaptation, right? A, a physiological change, uh, a species wide in response to an environmental stressor adaptation. Um, we have this large frontal lobe and it problem solves, it worries, right? What if this, what if that? Is there a problem? What if this person doesn't like me? What if this podcast is terrible? I knew I should be behind the scenes guy. <laughs> no one knows what the heck I'm talking about. This is why people, I stay behind the scenes, right? That's my frontal lobe, what ifing. What meditation can do is to train these areas of your brain to basically treat that like background noise and you get better at editing it out. And that's permanent. Like you... You know, if I could bench 185, next week I'm going to be able to bench 185. It's not going to suddenly go to 20 or up to 1,000, right? Like I might be only 175, but it's not going to dramatically, right? So if you meditate repeatedly, you're retraining your editing systems. And then these what ifs and all those thoughts, they're just more like background noise. And you can do that and, and all the annoyances in life. They're just kind of background noise. That's editing systems. And we don't give the brain enough attention to our editing systems. We're always more about like what's happening than what also isn't happening. And psychologically, both of those, in fact, what's not happening is more important often. I like that explanation. It, it, it makes a lot of sense to me, just the the way you explain that with the editing systems and, and what we do and don't pay attention to. So I love that. Yeah. And that's what people report. It's like, yeah, stuff still happens. It just doesn't bother me as much. Yeah. You hear that all the time from meditators. Yeah. That's how it works, but it doesn't just not bother you as much. You actually change the part of your brain. You change the functioning of your editing system. Very cool. Very yeah. Cool. Anything, I know we've covered a lot of things today, but I know there's a lot more in that head of yours. Um, <laughs> anything else that would be highly important to discuss today? Well, you know, 
I would just say a couple things. I'll do something for the amateurs and I'll do something for the pros or elites. Um, is, oh, there's so many things we could cover. But, <laughs> um, you know, one thing is, is so what, what do the beginners to early elites, they, they're too outcome focused, way too outcome focused. They, they must become more process focused. Outcomes, so there's the things that you do and then there's the things that, you, that show up. I drive coaches nuts because coaches keep talking about consistency. You know, as athletes and consistent, Tim, I want you to work with them. Coach, consistency is what shows up. You cannot force someone into being consistent, right? So we want the input and, and, and that early phase all the way up to kind of early elite, they focus on the output. They focus on the things that show up. Don't. We want to focus on the things that you can do so that those things show up. So strength training is just lift heaviest things in a pull and a push and do your, you know, your hips and your, um, what do you call them? Uh, what do you call that? Uh, hinge, sure. hinge work, oh, right? Yeah. Like deadlift and stuff. Um, and so I, I use such a bad example or whatever. I couldn't even ask a PT's assistance. <laughs> That's how off I was. <laughs> Um, that. That'd be like asking the most expert person on the planet in movies. You know, that movie that was in like the seventies with an actor and they're like, yeah, I have no <laughs> idea. Uh, <laughs> that was me just then. Um, so focus on process. What are the things that will allow these other things to show up? You know, running slowly allows fitness to show up. That's what you want. You don't want a fast 5k. The, your body doesn't know what a 15 minute 5k or a 20 minute 5k is. Your body doesn't know. So do the things that lead to fitness and figure out what leads to fitness, right? That's an adaptation. And then you'll suddenly be putting up better times with elites or pros. Once you show up, everyone's good. Like you're not talking about, you're just going to scomp the competition because everyone is worse than you. Everyone's good. So the real question for pros is basically, what do you have to do for you to trust? Trust. And trust is, by definition, you've witnessed yourself do it. Well, if you've never beat the number one in the world, you've never witnessed yourself beating the number one in the world. So you can't trust that you could beat the number one in the world. But if you do A, B, and C, then you know you can compete with anybody on any given day. You know that. And, and what I want to do with my pros is I want it to come down to choice. You did A, B, and C. You know you're as good as anybody in the world. If you slow down, you're choosing to slow down. Your body doesn't have to slow down. You have the capacity to run with this person or play tennis with this person or whatever. Um, but if you don't build it up from a view, a lens of trust, then you don't know you have a choice to continue. And if you strip someone of their choice, they will fail. If you in, 
infuse someone with the choice, they will succeed. So we don't succeed because we can't or because we're mentally weak. We don't succeed because we don't know we have a choice to succeed, right? If, 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 you, if no one in your family went to college and none of your friends went to college and, and you want to go to college, but you've never seen anyone go to college, you don't even know you have a choice to go to college. You just think people like you don't go to college. Mm-hmm. That's what makes us fail is life strips us of choice and choice is everything. So with elites, we build up we, everything is about viewing it through a lens of trust. And that goes for beginners too. At 46, I couldn't, I could do one pull up, but I knew if I do process and I do all the things and I study hard and I study and I did all my studying, I knew that I could be, you know, top 1% in the 50 plus age group. If I take it seriously for four years and I did, but I had the wherewithal, the, the, capacity to execute I knew it was a choice I knew it wasn't talent I knew all that stuff right so even for a novice to know it's a choice you just have to do it long enough and you have to study hard it's knowledge not talent um that's huge how's all that working for you I like it. I, I, I really like both aspects of that as far as the process side of things and just remembering it is a choice that I mean, obviously the body shows up how it does every day, like you said earlier, but at the end of the Mm -hmm. day too, like we can choose how hard we want to push it. Right. And so for me, it's like, I need to run up a thousand vertical feet, run without stopping, not baby steps, run. And then I know I'm ready for world championships. That's one of my trust variables. Um, Until I do that, I, I don't trust that I could podium at a big, big race or something. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. That's that level. Um, but beginners, man, they're all about high profile. I want to do big bench press and the elites are all about low profile recovery, nutrition, you know? Um, so what we try to do is get our entry level folks into low profile stuff. Um, yeah, but elites, it's all about that trust. So there's so many things, but when people hit me up and, um, you know, and I work with folks, it, it's, it's not always psychological getting under the hood, though sometimes we go into autobiographical history and all that. Um, but it's more about just listening. What frameworks are you carrying that are broken? And we're going to change those. And I always apply neurophysiology to help them understand it rather than just that's wrong. I'm right. That's not going to work. You know, no one wants that. I don't want that either. Um, but if my understanding of the research is solid enough, I think you'd be better off changing your framework from this to that, from talent to um, process and trust and stuff like that. Yeah. And then we could really do it. But The biggest thing is I I really want to thank you for bringing me on to us. It's like, if we could help people to understand you were depressed, you had panic attacks, things were happening. Your well-being was disrupted. There's no evidence of a chemical imbalance that was refuted in 1952. You're not broken. You are disrupted. There's suffering going on. We're not minimizing the suffering you're enduring. 
but there is a there is a rational scientific well understood if your therapist says well the causes of depression are unknown or anxiety are unknown they don't know but we know the science behind this stuff and it's actually pretty easy to understand and so let's help each other out so that we can save lives end suffering decrease suffering and help people to do, to do better. And, and I really appreciate you letting us, let me jump on because that's what we're trying to do. So it's really honestly not about money. It, it's just not, um, it's about that. Yeah. Well, I, I enjoy this conversation and getting you on here. I think you had a lot of valuable information to share with people. If someone does want to reach out to you, wants to know more about what you're doing or how you can help them, where can they find you? Yeah, so um, my Instagram is Tim Silvestri, I think. <laughs> I'm so bad with Instagram. Uh, it's one of my to-do lists that I never get to. Um, my uh, my um, email is timothysilvestri at gmail. Um, you could put my phone number in the show notes. I don't, everyone has my phone number, so they can just text me. Um, that's six one zero seven five one two zero two four, and uh, yeah. So just reach out. I, I don't. I sometimes have to charge, but I don't always charge. I'm meeting with someone at five thirty today. I'm not charging her, um, and you know, it, it just. We'll see. It's a simple question. I love answering questions and getting people back in the game versus like committing to someone and working with them, you know, then, then that might make sense to be, but it won't cost you anything to reach out and get a few answers, uh, questions answered. Awesome. Well, thank you so cool. much for that. I really appreciate your time again. Yep. Take care. You too. And before I close out today, I want to take a moment to talk to you about the foot and ankle fix for runners. Foot and ankle pain is such a common injury with runners, and yet it doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be bothering you constantly. It doesn't have to be shutting you down from being able to run. But many times it does because we don't do the right things for it. That is why I created the Foot and Ankle Fix for Runners. It's an online program that'll give you the right things to do in order to resolve your foot and ankle issues once and for all and let you really get back to training like you want to. So if you're interested in checking out the foot and ankle fix for runners, head over to getyourfixpt.com courses and you can see a link for the foot and ankle fix for runners as well as all of my other online programs. Thank you again so much for listening today. I really hope you enjoyed this conversation. And until next time, let's go out and be highly functional.